some of the most twin. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Looking like in the between. I don't know. <laughs> Let's just go around with them. <laughs> well, a very, very heavy, uh, heavy debrutation tonight. We had a very Darius, Darison by, let's go ahead and tear a station. Let's go to the bit they haven't picked. Excellent. What's good, fam? This is The Queer Archive, a queer and feminist Doctor Who podcast. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Brenna. And this week we're talking about Under the Lake. Let's swim on down and pull the open to see what adventures await us in the fathoms below. I actually really like this episode. I always forget that these are two, like, solid episodes. Yeah, maybe not super memorable, but... I don't know why. Like, yeah. I thought that they were really well done. I feel like I'm starting to change my mind. I think Series 9 does reach the same heights as Series 8 in a couple key episodes, and the rest are just, like, solid. They're good. Good scripts, good direction. We'll see if I still feel that way after the Lady Me episodes. Ugh. Yeah, I'm actually hopeful that the rewatch of those two episodes with Lady Me are going to be a little less They're whatever they mind. yeah i feel like i'm going to have an open mind towards them okay. this time around okay. especially hearing from people who watch game of thrones and really loving her performance and like being a little bit more open to enjoying her and i i just don't know her from anything so i was immediately like this doesn't grip me yeah. so we'll see when we get there i think i like this two-parter a lot more than I remembered. It even starts off really well with a creepy-ass narrator voice to just set the scene. And then we jump into this episode, and the first faces we see are just people of color everywhere. Hell yes. We see sign language. We see women. This cast is just doing the damn thing, and I'm here for it. And some of the characters we root for the most are women, people of color. And honestly, perhaps maybe the center of this story is revolving around a disabled woman. Yeah. Which, yes, is my shit. Yeah, and the actor playing cast, Sophie Stone, is incredible. Actually, the whole cast is really, really good. Even the guy who's playing Pritchard, like, I'm excited to see him die, Mm -hmm. which tells me that he's doing a good job of Mm -hmm. being an asshole. Mm -hmm. The one white guy we see, he's a ween, so we'll allow it. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. No one's rooting for him, and he gets killed off, so props. When we were re-watching this the first time, I was like, I like everyone in this episode except for this guy, and then he died, and I was like, right. I actually literally yelled, that's what your late capitalism ass gets when he gets drowned. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, random thought. But when the Doctor and Clara land the TARDIS and walk out into the submarine, they see this random ass dragon mural. mural, And it kind of leads the audience on, if you're watching this for the first time, to think that that may be a part of the plot. It may be the big monster of the week. It never comes up again. Yeah. <laughs> it's I super random. Do think the face of the dragon does look like the penis head Fisher King a little bit? So maybe there's that. Like it's an art. <laughs> his head looks like a penis. <laughs> really? I always yes. thought his mouth looked like a vagina. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. So gorgeous. <laughs> um, anyways. Uh, I'll cut out the vomit noise. <laughs> 
I do really like Twelve's relationship to his TARDIS. He talks to her. He listens to her. She interacts with him. I always hoped that Eleven would do that since he actually met the TARDIS in human form. He met Idris, but, you know, what the fuck ever. (laughs) Yeah, Idris was magnificent. And Eleven gets a whole episode with her. But honestly, I think Twelve talks to the TARDIS more, and it's super endearing. I think it almost is some foreshadowing to the tenderness with which Jodie's doctor has for her best girl. Yeah. And honestly, I cannot wait to talk about that dynamic, but back to Capaldi. (laughs) I kind of love how the doctor runs into someone who knows who he is and just is a huge geek about it. It's so so cute. She is. And I especially love that her excitement over the doctor is not sponsored by heteronormativity. Yeah. It's because she's, like, a big fan of how much of a badass he is. Yeah. And she tells him, I'm a huge fan of your work. Yeah. <laughs> it's super cute. It's interesting, too, because the last time the show ran ran into a fan, besides Osgood, who also mm. totally rules, is Love and Monsters, which is, like, a cursed episode. What? Love and Monsters. I don't know her. Oh, that doesn't mm, exist. I don't mm. go there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that episode is cursed. <laughs> but I do like that McDonald is excited. She's trying to act like she's not excited. You see that in the next episode yeah. when she gets out of the TARDIS and she waits for him to go around the corner and then she's like, oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Charlotte. What's her name? McDonald, right? O'Donnell. Is it O'Donnell? Yeah. It's O'Donnell, not McDonald. I'm not Did you say McDonald? Yes, like okay. twice. I'm not going to go back and fix all that shit. O'Donnell is us. We're just going to, we're going to accept that I got that wrong and move on. <laughs> Also, did you catch that Bennett, when they're trying to find the temple, he does the neuropilot thing from Saranga Conundrum? He sure does. That I never, was dope. Yeah, I didn't even realize that Saranga was no. calling back until this last time we watched it. And I was yeah. like, oh, shit. You pointed it out, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I would have never guessed that when we watched the Saranga. Yeah. Next to it, yeah. The doctor, when he says he could read Speak sign. sign <laughs> What an asshole. <laughs> Absolute do, asshat. I do love that he gets it wrong and then he gets embarrassed and he has to, bit. and he's like, oh, no, 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 actually. Um. <laughs> I know. I guess he can lose some of that knowledge sometimes. He says it's been replaced with semaphore, which is flag signals. <laughs> <laughs> also, when the doctor concludes, they're ghosts, as if they didn't just mere moments earlier. Like somebody didn't literally just say yeah. that. Yeah, hey, I think they're ghosts. And then he's, he's like, like, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I do like that Clara's also like, you actually poo-pooed mm-hmm. the ghost theory. Remember that one time, yeah. like, a few minutes ago? <sighs> nah, nah, if it comes from his brain, it's a novel new idea, right? Yeah. One other random note towards the end, when the doctor and Clara are being separated by that door as they're letting the water come in. Yeah. It just looks like a classic Doctor Who moment that reoccurs every so often between the Doctor and his companion getting separated by a door that is often maybe the same prop because it's the door with (laughs) With like the the circle circle window, right? So it's just like an iconic visual. There's, who is it? Okay, so there's 10. And Donna. (laughs) He's separated by Donna and they're communicating, but also 10 and being separated by Martha. um, And he's mouthing, I will save you to Martha. I just like her. Escape pod, I think, is, like, hurling towards the sun. Yes. Um, and I think there's just, like, a few other... Oh, like, more recently, Capaldi and Clara yeah. themselves in Deep Breath. And the Doctor actually closes the door on her uh, this purpose. time. <laughs> so, character development? Question mark? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so it was just like a kind of iconic moment that I've picked up on being a reoccurring visual. Yeah, kind of like how there's only one ship hallway. And oh, my God. always with the little, like, sticky-outy bits mm-hmm. in the tunnel. <laughs> Which I was noticing is pretty inaccessible. Like, there's a lot of non-flat parts on the ground itself yeah. for the... I think at the seams where pieces of the set like come together and there's a, the door that would close. There's like a ridge. And so you wouldn't be able to like do any sort of wheels on that yeah. thing, which is weird, annoying, and very random. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that's all I have. Okay. What about you? No, same. I think I've had enough haunting pulled to open. Let's materialize in the High Council to talk about how Toby Whithouse does not suck. All right, we're back in the High Council, the segment where we discuss folks in power positions in the world of Who production. All right, so it's <laughs> written by Toby Whithouse. Toby! Toby's actually written a lot for Doctor Who. He's I was for just thinking the same thing. 10, 11, and 12. A. He did School Reunion. Terrible. Uh, <laughs> Vampires of Venice. I actually enjoy School Reunion. It's okay. Some of it. My problem is... It's very compartmentalized. I have a hard time watching Anthony Stewart head and believing that he's a bad guy because I look at him and see Giles. I know. And that was whack. weird bat things. And I'm always like... I was very conflicted. <laughs> Mr. Giles. But, I mean, he kind of does a great bad guy. Anyways. Anyways, that's for a different, <laughs> a different podcast, not us. I'm not going back to Tenet. Nobody can make me. Unless we do Silence in the Library. That's in our future. I would Absolutely. do Silence in the Library, Force of the Dead. I'd do Midnight. It's just not anytime soon because, no. boy, do we we'll have some catch up to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he wrote School Toby Whithouse. <laughs> Vampires of Venice, The God Complex, which is one of my favorite 11 episodes. So good. A Town Called Mercy, which is awful. <laughs> Wait, I literally don't remember it. Which one it's, is this? Uh, it's a series seven episode, which already tells oh, you how much why. it sucks. Yeah. Okay. And it's the <laughs> one where it's the old west, and there oh, yep. is. No, I know oh, okay. exactly which. One. <laughs> There's only so many old western uh, episodes that we get <laughs> yeah. in Doctor Who, so. No, I don't like it. And then um, he also wrote Under the Lake Before the Flood, and then yeah, he wrote The Lie of the Land. The Monk trilogy is so Sorry, cursed. Bro. So yeah. cursed. That's why. I Probably said, not his fault. That's a spread. <laughs> Sure this one was a, a banger, though. Yeah, so. these two are bangers. He also acted, I didn't know this until today when I was looking up, he is the German soldier that Mark Gatiss almost kills in Peter Capaldi's last episode. What the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's cute. That is cute. <laughs> That's so funny. Toby talked about, I think this was in an article, I'll link to it in the show notes, about why he wanted to include a deaf character in this episode. He said it all started with needing a character who could read lips, and then he was thinking about a panel he'd been on with, he'd been at a panel at a convention, I guess, where there were a bunch of deaf actors, and they were talking Mm. about how difficult it is to find roles because they're deaf, and so he was like, oh, well then obviously I should make this role into a deaf actor because that makes sense for a deaf person to read lips. Not all deaf people read lips, by the way. But just the idea that he was like, I know that that's a problem. I want to address that. And so Mm -hmm. I will create a character for a deaf actor specifically. I think that that fucking rules. One more time for the folks in the back. Like, that is the takeaway, bro. And props to the deaf actors and the panelists that bring that shit up and that make that change happen for directors and writers who are willing to hear that. Yeah. Absolutely. And then this episode was directed by Daniel O'Hara. This is actually his first Doctor Who credit, but he's done 
a lot of other work for other shows, like Being Human and Skins. Mm. And these episodes, to me, do read like somebody who has like a really firm hand on the tiller. He is confident. Lots of interesting segues and shots, like the transition from um, when they're in the... It's like the control room to later when the doctor turns around and says, they're ghosts. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just a spin turn. And then I also actually Sounds really dope. like there's a shot that comes from up top inside the TARDIS when the TARDIS is freaking out. Mm. And the doctor is saying she doesn't want to be here near the ghosts. They're a splinter in time. And there's a shot from up top that swings down and around as mm. he says, put on the handbrake. So it comes from up top That's and then cool. arcs down next to him. And you see the handbrake getting put on, like, right in the lower part of the screen. It's a nice shot. What I'm saying is Daniel O'Hara is doing some good work. I peep the vision. Like, it shows. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as much as I like the work these gents did, I'm ready for the fun stuff. Let's head to the Black Archive to talk about representation and how Sophie Stone kicks absolute ass. Okay, we're in the Black Archive, which yep. is the segment where we talk about all the dangerous, forbidden stuff that even the doctor shouldn't be touching. We're talking race, class, sexuality, gender, bodies, all the fun stuff. Yeah! How about the portrayal of a disabled character who kicks absolute ass? Yes, please. I love it. Toby Whithouse, in that article that I'm going to link to in the show notes, said that part of what he picked up from that panel was, first, what has to happen is parts have to be written for disabled actors and then the other thing that has to happen is that disabled actors have to be cast in non-disabled parts so this mm -hmm. was part of why he felt like he wanted to make casts for a disabled actor because he felt convicted i guess about how difficult mm. it is for deaf actors to get work yeah i think he did a phenomenal job mm -hmm. writing this character yeah he also said in that same article it's important to him that Cass was a hero mm -hmm. that she be the smartest person in the room besides the doctor which i fucking love and that she be basically the moral center i'm extremely here for all that yeah. shit we are totally rooting for her from the get-go mm -hmm. i love her agency and her love and responsibility for her crew it's yeah. just it's really great to see she gets a love interest and most importantly like you said she is played by a deaf actress and her disability is not to serve a plot point yeah. What oftentimes happens is that you kind of write your plot and then you use disability as like a loophole or a lazy way to get out of a sticky situation. Yeah. So it could have been a blind character that happens to not be able to see the letters on the spaceship yeah. wall, right? Yeah. But this episode does not do that. They allow her disability to just exist yeah. as a part of her character because people with disabilities exist everywhere. Yeah. And it's also not like a an inspo porn thing, right? It's not like, Absolutely. wow, you're so incredible because you've been through... No, she's incredible because she's smart and competent and strong and is willing to stand up to the doctor who's like, yes. the doctor. And she's like, you can get fucking wrecked if you want to do the whole cabin in the woods thing. Go ahead and do that, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. She's That's not swayed by him at all. I love her self-awareness and, like you said, her intelligence. Just mm -hmm. fuck yeah, Cass. Yeah. All right, so what do we think about this episode, and how it stands up to the Bechdel and DuVernay test. I think it's a strong pass for both. Dun-dun! Yeah. <laughs> Hell yes. It feels like this is the first time an episode that we've been discussing has passed both of these well. Like a strong yes. I think it technically has passed before. Yes. Time Heist, I think it was. But if you've listened to our episode on Time Heist, it's yeah. not a strong pass. Yeah. Because that episode was actually really 
really problematic. Yeah. But this is, it passes Bechtel because there's a bunch of badass women and they mm-hmm. do talk to each other about not the men in the room. And you've also got, well, you've got three characters of color, but one of them dies promptly. But we get to know Bennett enough in this episode that I think it handily passes DuVernay. And we'll get to know Lun in the next episode, too. Like, we get to understand who they are, what they want, their interiority, mm-hmm. their desires. That's my shit. Mm. The least fleshed out character is the asshole capitalist. And he died. That, so. that just, you know, it's a little <laughs> fucked. <laughs> I don't care about him. He's so a it's great. It's Actually, great. the doctor sums it up perfectly. Wow, I get it. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know what? An episode that passes Bechtel and DuVernay both without question. That's so nice. nice. Yeah. Like, wow. I-, I guess we can ride that sweet high all the way to the heart of the TARDIS. But first, a word from our sponsor. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by Vector Petroleum. While renewable energy sources are still developing, it's important to rely on oil companies that you can trust. That's why Vector Petroleum is the leading brand in energy. Vector Petroleum is committed to safe, ethical oil collection without the ghost of waste and negative environmental impact. Vector Petroleum. Determination and dedication are in our nature. We made it to the heart of the TARDIS. Let's talk about some feels, and let's talk about the supposed morals of this episode. Okay. I think one of the punchlines here is the doctor trying to have a talk with Clara about her Mm. getting too risky Mm. when they're in the TARDIS. Yep. The eye of a duty of care. Yeah, because he's telling her... There can only be one me. And then when he says, I have a duty of care, and she says, I know, you take it very seriously. It's a pretty big step forward from where they were last series, I think. Because they talk to each other? Yeah. About, like, how they feel. Yes. Yes. They talk about how they feel. The doctor actually expresses his concerns instead of trying to save Clara. At the end of the last series, they both lie to each other because they're trying to save each other from pain. This series, they actually both say to each other, this is how I feel. Here are my concerns. And Clara's like, no, I'm good. And then he goes, all right. And then they move on having actually talked about and acknowledged one another's Mm -hmm. feelings. That's a big step forward. That's no small feat. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that it's actually more as equals this time around, less paternal, which unfortunately is the role he seemed to play often last season in regards to her relationship with Danny. Yeah, a lot of benevolent sexism. And this actually Mm -hmm. reads like two friends who really care about each other and they're just a little worried and want to put it on the table. Yeah. The only thing that I would have changed is... Could they just fucking hug at the end of that scene? I know. I know that, like, physical touch is not everyone's thing. That's actually great that that is respected. The doctor doesn't love to hug. But, like, watching it, I was like, hug, please. Just hug already. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that this episode is, I'm torn on, a, I have a lot of torn feelings regarding Clara's behavior. Yeah. And the way that they start to frame her and the way that this plays into her arc. Yes. As far as, like. <laughs> Leading up to being punished, I think one way the podcast Terminus posed it was Icarus getting too close to the sun. Yeah. And that seems to be exactly what this arc fell into with Clara wanting to be too much like the doctor and getting punished for it at the end. And that's this is the start of that, or at least it's the middle of this. And I like that the doctor is feels comfortable enough to call her out when he does get worried and that he respects when she says, I'm I'm good, good. bro. Thank yeah. you so much, but I'm good. But at the same time, the episode is almost 
telling the audience to be like, she's not good. Yeah. And that makes me feel a little... Yeah, I don't like that either. But I do like that he is telling her, you're my friend, I care about you, I'm worried. And she goes... Thank you. Message received. I'm good. And then they go, all right, and then move mm-hmm. on. That's that's vulnerable. And I think that's real friendship to be able to go to our friend and say, I feel concerned about these behaviors. Yeah. There's a great many adults that have friendships that do not do that. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of growth in their friendship, do you want to talk about the scene with the cards? I fucking love the cards. <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> that whole scene, first of all, is hilarious it's and adorable. so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, secondly... That scene is mainly read to be kind of a funny bit, mm-hmm. but it's also an extremely exaggerated example of how we all practice empathy. Yeah. It, of course, seems like certain people probably are better at empathy or it comes more naturally to some people, but empathy is something that never comes without practice. And mm-hmm. I think this scene plays off of that reality. It's saying that it's always a muscle that has to be stretched and used and regularly rehearsed. And I kind of love that the doctor uses these cards to rehearse what doesn't come naturally to him at all. Yeah. You were saying it's like the good place. Yeah. So in throughout all of the good places seasons, there's something that Michael, the architect, spoiler alert, by the way, this is not super spoilery, but but it did happen in it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, Michael, the architect says when they're trying to train humans to quote unquote, become good, Mm -hmm. they have to perform good behavior first and practice it. And then the motivations come later. Yeah. So this reminds me a lot of that principle as far as the doctor first having to be told to pull out cards, which Clara wrote for him. Yes. And he has to rehearse practicing what empathy looks like. Yes. He has to say them out loud. He does this because he knows it'll help. Yes. And then later, he pulls them out out of his own will because he wants to help. Yeah, he knows He knows the moment is calling for empathy, mm. but he doesn't have the words, so he's scanning through them to see, do any of these apply? This yep. is him face the raven. And then even up until Bill, you were saying this the other day, yeah. that he eventually doesn't need the cards anymore because he's mm-hmm. learned. Yeah, it's almost like the next phase is that he's able to articulate himself the words of empathy that he wants to communicate. Yeah. And so... The doctor didn't come out of the box just like none of us come out of the box good at something like empathy. He has to robotically practice it at first, right? And it's also kind of reminds me a lot of what Michael in The Good Place says is that what's more important is are you trying to be a better person than you were yesterday? Yeah. We see a doctor and this doctor walk through those steps and being willing to to do the robotic clunky version first. Yes. And this is also keeping in line with like what adult learners need. Yes. So exactly. he is an adult learner. He has in the last series, Clara was doing all the emotional labor for him. And when you are teaching, I mean when you're teaching anything, but especially adult learners, the model is I do, you watch, you do, I assist, you do, I watch, you do. Hmm. So here we're at you do I assist because she's written the cards and she's telling him you need the cards. And then she flips through them to find the right one and hands it over to him. And he turns around and reads it and it's bad, but it is the idea that Kara is helping him learn how to be his own emotional intelligence to do his own emotional labor. And by the end of the season, he will be able to at least know that his empathy is required and he'll know I'm, I have the tools and he'll be able to do it. And then eventually when it gets to Bill in the pilot, when she's really overwhelmed, he says, how can I help? You're upset. How can I help you? Yeah. And that's that's an arc that I can get behind. Yep. 
I think that's all I have for the heart of the TARDIS. Okay. <laughs> well, that is a, a beautiful, yet again, a beautiful, warm and fuzzy TARDIS. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Maybe as an antidote, we should send something to a crack in time and space. Send it to a crack! What are we sending this week, Caitlin? Oh, boy. So, we talked a lot about the amazing casting and the amazing roles that Whithouse wrote for all of these characters that we get in the crew. Also, shout out to the casting director, whoever they were. They were also doing the Lord's work here. Oh, yeah. I never know when to attribute what to who. Whoever it was, snaps to you. All that being said, it is still unfortunate Mm -hmm. that this episode participates in a trope that kills off the black man first, and it really falls into this trope well because it's a shorthand to demonstrate the severity of the danger at hand with a typical example of, like, the big, strong army black man yep. as the one to be killed. First. And that's literally all we know about him. Yep, exactly. So we know he's big, strong, and black, and we need to know how dangerous these things are. So that's the sacrifice. That's the demonstration. Yeah, that sucks. Boo to that. Byronimo to that. <laughs> Bitch. Bitch. <laughs> what about top three moments? The fucking shade that the doctor shows Capalas man, whatever his Pichard. name is. Pichard. Yeah. Particularly the line when he says, sorry, why is this man still talking to me? <laughs> I also do like the next line where he says, oh, I get it. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those aren't in line, but no. same sentiment, yes. right? Yes. It kind of reminds me of Jody in the most recent series 11 when she's talking to that. Trump stand in. Yeah. In um, Arachnids. Sorry, am I supposed to know who you are? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. What about you? The cards, obviously. Mm. I love the cards. The whole scene. I also, third moment, love Cass telling the doctor that her job is to protect her crew. Mm. That speech is great, and Sophie is serving that speech 100%. Mm-hmm. And I'm it's, eating it up. Yep, it's just good. Tell him, girl. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about part two of this pair, Before the Flood. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive Pod. We want to hear from you. Your thoughts, your feels on this episode, how much you love Sophie Stone. We love her too. And please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice because it really helps queeros find us. Until next time. Be gay. Flood capitalism right out the door until it's so dead it becomes a ghost. Yeah. Tune on your speakers and please be my doctor, whoever. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh Yes, sir